Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Our nation has witnessed many acts of cowardice and violence in recent days, including the tragic shooting at the synagogue in Pittsburgh. We grieve for the lives lost and those who were left behind. May they find peace. It is during divisive times like these that it's particularly important that we honor our heroes, those individuals who have shown courage, character, and conviction. And that is what Real Heroes, the book that forms the basis for today's lecture, is all about. Welcome uh, to the Heritage Foundation. I'd also like to welcome those who are joining us online. Uh, Please feel free to uh, submit questions online, and we will also be taking questions after the lectures today. With that, it's my great pleasure to introduce our speaker today, Larry Reed. Larry is president of the Foundation for Economic Education. Founded in 1946, FEE is actually the very first modern think tank in the United States. And FEE, it was also a FEE seminar that first introduced me to the ideas of liberty and sparked my interest in the freedom movement. So I really have to credit FEE Uh, for where I am today, and I'm so grateful for the work they do to expose uh, especially young people in high school and college uh, to the ideas of liberty. Previously, Larry served for 20 years as president of the Mackinac Center for Public Policy in Michigan, and he also taught um, economics at Northwood University in Michigan, where he chaired the department for a few years. Larry is a native of Pennsylvania and a 30-year resident of Michigan and now resides in Georgia, where Fee is headquartered. Larry, please join me, and please join me in welcoming Larry to the podium. Thank you, Romina. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, those of you here in the audience and all of you online as well. It's a great honor for me to be here at Heritage and to speak to a Heritage audience. I've always viewed you as the mothership of the policy think tank movement, and not only because of your great work on uh, policy, but also because of the central role that Heritage and Heritage people have played in uh, jumpstarting the state-based free market think tank movement. And as former head of one of those think tanks, the Mackinac Center, we benefited greatly from uh, your good work and, and your help in our early days and beyond. So I'm I'm thrilled to be here and to share with you some thoughts about heroes, but of a particular kind. And I want to be sure that, uh, did the books arrive? 
because I think uh, we meant to send enough to give one to everybody. I hope they did. Well, uh, we'll get you it. Okay, 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 no problem. Uh, in any event, uh, we'll get you one if they, for some reason, didn't come. I, I, we may have sent them by government post office, so there's no, <laughs> no guarantee that uh, they made it, I guess. Um, but I've been asked to talk about particular heroes uh, as a way of giving you a taste of uh, uh, the recent book I published uh, called Real Heroes, um, uh, Stories of Courage, Character, and Conviction. And what I'd like to do is to, uh, uh, first of all, explain what I mean by a hero, what is a hero, and then tell you about the particular kind uh, of hero I'd like to highlight today. Uh, all of us have known or certainly know of people who have performed heroic deeds uh, and in particular moments, a firefighter who rushes in a burning home to save a child certainly is a hero, and I would take nothing from that person or from that heroic moment. But in this book, I try to focus on people who lived not only heroic moments, but heroic lives, uh, heroic lives which were made up of many heroic moments of one kind or another. To me, a hero, a genuine hero, for a free society, that's another central focus of the book, is a person who practices uh, sterling qualities of personal character, the kind that are indispensable, I think, to the preservation of a free society. Things like honesty, speaking truth to power, uh, humility, the recognition that as much as you may know, there is still a universe of knowledge out there that you don't know. It's amazing how understanding that uh, core principle can change a person's personality, because the moment you realize how little you know, most of the time, you become a bit more introspective. You realize that uh, I, no matter how many PhDs I may have next to my name, there is still an infinity of knowledge I don't know, and that'll be just as true the day I leave this earth as it was the day I was born. So that tends to make uh, a person a bit more humble and focused on self-improvement and, uh, and learning as opposed to uh, uh, taking on a know-it-all uh, attitude. I also think a true hero uh, exhibits courage, and thank goodness they do, because if there is one thing uh, required for the maintenance of a free society, perhaps over all other things, it is courage. We live in a dangerous world and always have, and uh, it is full of people who would be happy to take your liberties from you uh, if you give them the opportunity, and they are, are not only from abroad, they are from within our midst as well. So courage is important, and so is responsibility, stepping up to the plate. And, and rather than pointing the finger at other people, saying, y uh, it's your fault or you owe me a living, uh, give me something, uh, instead a truly responsible person uh, will be accountable, and uh, eagerly so, for his or her own decisions and actions. Um, but the kind of heroes I want to focus on uh, here today are heroes of wealth creation. I mean, there are all kinds of heroes, and there are 40 of them in, in the book. And uh, some of them are heroes because they spent a lifetime speaking truth to power. Uh, they were heroes within government or uh, within other walks of life. But uh, it's the ones responsible for wealth creation that I'd like to focus on today. Wealth creation is pretty important stuff. In fact, uh, it was Adam Smith who told us so eloquently more than 200 years ago that the creation of wealth is hardly automatic, uh, 
nothing to, that is uh, just guaranteed about it. <clears throat> it requires a certain framework, an institutional framework to allow it to happen. And that uh, um, if we don't encourage that, then we will have tremendous problems in real matters, such as feeding and clothing and housing real people. I think it's no coincidence that he, uh, or no uh, mere happenstance, that he titled his second of two books, An Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations, instead of An Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Poverty of Nations. I, I will be putting some words in his mouth, perhaps, but I think if Smith were here today and you were to ask him, why didn't you uh, use poverty instead of wealth in the title of your book? <clears throat> because so many people today are concerned about poverty. It's a problem all over the world, and we're trying to resolve it. Why didn't you focus on that instead of wealth? I think he would say something like, because everybody knows what causes poverty. It's what happens if nothing happens. It's what happens if we don't do anything. It's sort of the natural state into which we're born until we do something about it. And so if you really want to solve the poverty problem, I think Smith would say, you've got to know something about where does wealth come from, how to create it. And that includes people who uh, uh, make a profit. I know today progressives love to suggest that, oh, if you're in business, uh, in, in the business of wealth creation, but you're doing it for profit, that somehow taints uh, your activity. You should instead be in favor of just creating wealth and helping other people, uh, I guess, to in the process of breaking even or even encouraging or even incurring a loss. Uh, I remember hearing some of those kinds of objections from students when I taught. Uh, usually they were the freshmen because by the time they were seniors, we'd worked this out of them. But I remember that uh, on one occasion, I pointed out to a student, if I take $100 worth of stuff, of ingredients, and I add some of my thoughts to it, I take some risks, rearrange it, add some people to it, and we end up producing something now that in the marketplace would fetch me $150. Haven't I added wealth to society? Haven't I taken X amount and created something new? Haven't I baked a bigger pie? Why would it be virtuous uh, in, by any stretch to take $100 worth of stuff and play with it for a while, take some risks with it, add these other ingredients, and then turn out something that people will only give me $50 for? Uh, why is that virtuous? That's wealth subtraction. And the more you look at the process of wealth creation, the more you realize that although we all are involved in it in some way at one time or another, maybe even a little bit every day, those who know how to create vast wealth are relatively uncommon people. It's the uncommonness of the great wealth creators in human history that I think are responsible for so much of the progress, the economic progress of humankind. Um, if you, can you imagine a parent uh, instructing a child anything like this? Johnny, work as hard as you can, and someday you might be common. I think we all say, well, that's a, that's a kind of child abuse. We don't want children to grow up to be run-of-the-mill, nothing special, uh, no different from, than the average Joe. We want them to be uncommon. We want them to, uh, to do... Uh, great things, to stand out from the crowd, uh, because that's what propels humanity forward. 
Uh, now, the first such example, I'll run through several uh, to give you, is John D. Rockefeller. Not only one of the greatest wealth creators in American history, but also perhaps the biggest single boogeyman of the progressive left when it comes to American economic history. John D. Rockefeller. Oh my gosh, he made all this money, made it in a terrible business in, in oil, and, uh, uh, and simply because he became such a wealthy person, he must have accumulated that wealth in, in nefarious ways. I think the man is a hero. Uh, for the, into the, well into the first half of the 19th century, Americans lighted their homes with whale oil, as you probably know. But whales were a kind of common property, socialized in a sense. We had neither the knowledge or the technology to husband them and to privatize them. Um, so they were sort of common property. We all had an incentive to use them and abuse them, but very little incentive or ability to husband them to grow their number. And as a result, uh, with the growing populations, growing economies of the first half of the 19th century, whale oil uh, prices went through the roof. At the time, we didn't have a federal department of energy to manage the problem into perpetuity. Instead, uh, we allowed market forces to work, and the higher prices of whale oil sent powerful signals. Not only signals that affected demand, but on the more important side of things, supply. On the demand side, as whale oil prices went up, people found ways to conserve, ways to do with less. There were people, I'm sure, who, who thought, you know, maybe I could concentrate my reading in the daylight hours to the extent I can instead of uh, uh, burning whale oil at night. Or I think I've got a candle upstairs uh, that I forgot about. Maybe I'll pull that out and use it. There were ways in which people uh, curtailed their demand as prices rose, but the more important effect of the rising prices was on supply. They sent the signal uh, to entrepreneurs like John D. Rockefeller that uh, the market was crying for an alternative. Uh, find something to light our homes uh, in a place of uh, increasingly scarce whale oil. And into that picture, he was not the first, but came John D. Rockefeller uh, some uh, six years after uh, crude oil was discovered in Titusville, Pennsylvania in 1859. In 1870, young John D. Rockefeller formed the Standard Oil Company. This was not a Rockefeller with a silver spoon in his mouth. The subsequent generations you, could, you might be able to say that about, but this guy was a bookkeeper, a grocer, an accountant, a Sunday school teacher. Uh, but he saw an opportunity, which is a key element in what entrepreneurship is all about. Entrepreneurs tend to see opportunities uh, that, uh, to them, suggest a way to make some money by meeting future demand. But they also have the courage to act. And a lot of people like me who see opportunities but don't act, uh, don't take the risk uh, that uh, John D. Rockefeller did. In that first year uh, of operation as the Standard Oil, Oil Company in 1870, John D. Rockefeller's company commanded 4% of the oil refining market, only 4%. 20 years later, Standard will have 90% of the refined oil product market, 90%. And that's the source often of much of the uh, uh, hostility toward him. There are many on the progressive left who that's all they need to know, that one guy, his company, had 90% of a particular market to suggest he must have done something wrong or bad or harmful to somebody. That, in fact, was a fleeting number as increasing competition from all over the world 
uh, whittled his share down until by the time of the Supreme Court case, 1911, Standard's share was in the vicinity of something like 70% through sheer competition and the multiplicity of, of newcomers uh, to, the, to the market. But the most important thing to note is all the years, in all the years that Rockefeller was becoming so big, from 1870 to 1890, the price of his products uniformly, repeatedly, year after year, continued to decline, and dramatically so, and the quality of the products continued to increase. The, the refined oral products of 1890 were much better than those of 1870, and the price was a fraction of what it was when he started out. It was about 45 cents a gallon for kerosene in 1870, and he drove it down to about three cents by 1890. A remarkable uh, achievement. And as a result, he helped to put America on the world map as an economic powerhouse. Some years ago, I visited his gravesite, which is um, in the Lakewood Cemetery uh, just outside of Cleveland. And uh, I was a little bit appalled uh, to see uh, a marker. Uh, it, it did not intend in any way to denigrate the man, but it spent about as much time praising him or noting his, uh, the money that he gave away as it did noting uh, the wealth that he created in the first place. He was the first man to give away a billion dollars. Um, and th the emphasis on that plaque suggested maybe that's why this guy was so great and why, he, because of what he gave away. And I came away from that thinking, no, that's really not the case. He should be honored even more for the fact that he knew how to create it in the first place. You can't give it away if you haven't acquired it. And he did it voluntarily, peacefully, through the creation of wealth, the creation of a gigantic company that added uh, enormous new wealth to the American economy. He was, by the way, on a personal level, uh, 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 quite an interesting man. He was a lifelong uh, and faithful Christian who tithed and kept records of his tithing from the age of 17 until he died in his uh, late 90s. But maybe the most important achievement of John D. Rockefeller is that he saved the whales because he gave us an alternative in such uh, abundance and at such low prices that we no longer needed to rely upon uh, whales to light our homes. But uh, you won't hear the progressive left today giving him any credit for that. But in fact, that was an indirect effect of his uh, tremendous productivity. I want to mention a few other names. Uh, a, a woman whom I think uh, Ed Fulner probably knew, Vivian Kellams. How many have heard that name, Vivian Kellams? She passed away only in 1975, not all that long ago. Vivian Kellams in the 1920s was a tremendous uh, uh, inventor. She invented, uh, most importantly, a cable grip that would uh, secure and enable the transportation of heavy cables for things like suspension bridges. And later, she adapted that uh, for, during World War II into uh, a grip for the transportation of 2,700-pound artillery shells. But she was, first of all, an inventor. But, you know, you can't just invent something and expect the world to beat a path to your door. they got to know about it. She turned out to be a remarkable marketer and businesswoman as well. She formed a company, the Kellum's Cable Grip Company, in Stonington, Connecticut, for the purpose of marketing the device that she had uh, invented. Uh, she secured during World War II substantial uh, contracts with the American military, 
which brought her into contact with the bureaucracy of the federal government. And during wartime, she spoke out uh, very uh, publicly about what she regarded as the fraud and the waste and the intrusiveness of government bureaucracy. She was saying, look, we're trying to win a war here. Look at this massive bureaucracy that people like I have to deal with. And for that, the Roosevelt administration went after her but, uh, through the tax laws, but never actually laid a glove on her. But uh, what I most like about Vivian Kellams is that when uh, withholding by employers of uh, taxes on employee wages became compulsory, she went on the warpath. She started a national organization to, uh, uh, to overturn this. Of course, she was not successful, but fought it all the way to ultimately 1973 when the U.S. tax court ruled against her. But she argued that for a number of reasons, that compulsory withholding was a terrible thing. First of all, it, it hid the true and total cost of government from the average citizen because they took it from you before you got your pay. And so we don't quite appreciate how much government is costing us. And she thought for the sake of, of uh, just knowing, full disclosure, transparency, what government is costing you, uh, they ought to send you a bill once a year or whatever it may be, but not take it indirectly from you before you ever see it uh, in your paycheck. And she, uh, this was during the Truman administration, she said, if high tax Harry wants me as an employer uh, to uh, be a, an unpaid tax agent for the federal government, I want a badge. And uh, the first thing she did once it became compulsory was to refuse to comply with the law. She wanted to test it uh, in court, and she specifically wrote to the Treasury Secretary and said, please indict me, because she wanted to, uh, to challenge it. Well, like I say, uh, she uh, lost that ultimately to the detriment, I think, of all of us, but uh, she had great courage. Here's a battle that she won once. Uh, she's a great example of, of a uh, business person who not only knew how to create wealth, she knew the importance of a system that allowed you to do it. Uh, and the importance of supporting such a system. Uh, the state of Connecticut passed a law that said no women can work after 10 p.m. This is in the late 1940s. No women can work uh, at a place of employment after 10 p.m. Well, she had a lot of women uh, who worked for her in uh, her plant in Stonington, but they didn't have a night shift. So you might say, well, she could have just ignored it. It had no real direct impact on her. But she so resented the intrusiveness of the state government to even tell women when and whether or not they could work. She called together the women employees she had, and she said, let's start a night shift. And what she was hoping was that the cops would come, and then she'd have standing to challenge this in court. So they started working after 10 p.m., and she, they waited days. The cops never showed up. And it made her angry. She said, well, you know, they need to... They need to enforce the law so I can challenge it. So then this multimillionaire successful businesswoman went out and got a job herself as an all-night uh, waitress at a restaurant and held a news conference basically saying, come and get me. And within two days, the legislature of Connecticut passed a law repealing the one that she had been protesting. So she did have at least that one great victory. In American history, there are so many examples of, uh, of black entrepreneurs. 
that we should be paying more attention to. Every year at the time of uh, Black History Month, February, um, I think we should spend more time pointing out that our history of uh, the contributions of black Americans are, is not one solely of contributions on civil rights issues. It's also in the world of business. Uh, how many of you have heard the phrase, the real McCoy? Okay, well, the origin of that, as far as we know, goes back to Elijah McCoy, the son of slaves, uh, who um, noticed that uh, railroads, early railroads, locomotives in particular, had a problem that uh, required a solution. They could only go down the track a short distance before the engine would heat up too much and they'd have to stop it and wait until it cooled off before they could push it down the track some more. Elijah McCoy invented a lubricating cup that could be installed on these locomotives to give it constant lubrication so it could go a lot further before uh, the locomotive had to stop and be, uh, be serviced. This meant an enormous uh, windfall for the railroads and so much more convenience for passengers and freight as well. He went on, as the son of former slaves, to earn 57 patents in his lifetime. He started a manufacturing company in Detroit and lived himself until the 1920s, uh, died a much-revered wealth-creating entrepreneur um, in uh, Detroit. Uh, then there was Humphrey Reynolds, another black man who also uh, solved a problem in railroads. You know, the early ones, the locomotives had another problem, and that is they were belching this terrible black smoke. And if you happened to be in the car right behind it, uh, you know, you either had to keep the uh, windows up, especially which could be stifling on a hot day, or you rolled them down and got covered with soot or choked in it. It was Humphrey Reynolds who, who as a porter, uh, first, noticed this problem and recognized that there was a way to solve it, and he invented a ventilator system that fixed that problem uh, and uh, went on to become a successful businessman. Clara Brown, unfortunately long forgotten, but she was a slave herself who, uh, uh, after, after being freed, she went uh, west and started a, a chain of uh, what we was today call laundromats, uh, with not much in the way of technology, but uh, laundry business. And she eventually settled in California right at the time of the uh, uh, gold rush and was the first female black businesswoman, I'm sure there were few, maybe she was the only one, who cashed in on the great gold rush of 1849. And she did so as a uh, laundry entrepreneur. Barry Gordy is another who brought so much great Motown music uh, to not millions, probably a few billion uh, people around the world. Born in Detroit, his home is still a museum to this day. You may not know this, but uh, he started Motown Records in his home. Uh, and a few years out, he le left for California some years later, and I think he still lives there. But um, uh, a few years after that, the city council of Detroit passed a law uh, banning home-based businesses. Well, what does that say to poor inner city people like Barry Gordy once was? It says, hey, if you've got a good idea and you want to start a business, you're not allowed to do it in your home. You're going to have to find the money to go rent a building or build one yourself, which just prices a lot of budding entrepreneurs out of the market right from the get-go. I, I don't know if they still have that on the books, but it was on the books while I uh, lived in Michigan. Uh, Barry Gordy could never have gotten off the ground. Uh, if that had been on the books at the time he created Motown Records. 
And then there's a category of wealth creators that I especially like to write about. There are several chapters in the Hero's book about them, who, uh, though they may have personally been great wealth creators, their more important contribution was the wealth that their policies allowed other people to create. And first on, among those, in my mind, would be Andrew Mellon, one of the best of nearly 80 Treasury secretaries America has had. One of the longest serving, too, I think the third longest serving Treasury secretary in American history. He served under three presidents, Harding, Coolidge, and briefly under uh, Herbert Hoover, 11 years as Treasury Secretary. When he came into office uh, in 1921 as Warren Harding's first uh, and only Treasury Secretary, uh, the income tax uh, system had only been in place for less than a decade, passed in 1913, uh, we, it wasn't even a decade old by 1921, and at the time of the debate in 1913 over the income tax, whether or not to establish it, uh, people scoffed at the notion that the top rate would ever exceed 10 percent. But by 1921, in less than a decade, the top rate was 73 percent. And uh, uh, Andrew Mellon noticed that that was having a profoundly negative effect on the creation of wealth. He noticed that uh, John D. Rockefeller's own son was invested heavily, not in Standard Oil, but in, in uh, treasury bonds, sterile treasury bonds, helping to finance the federal government instead of wealth-creating entrepreneurs. And a big reason for that is they were tax-exempt, uh, but you put it in something else, you might pay as high as a 73% rate. Uh, Andrew Mellon determined as Treasury Secretary he was going to uh, uh, push through with the support of Harding and later Coolidge, dramatically lower rates. And by the time he was done, the top income tax rate was dropped from 73% to 24%. Uh, the percentage on, at, of uh, reduction at the lower end was even greater. It, the top rate went from like 4% to 0.5%. Percentage-wise, it was an even greater decline on lower-income people. And uh, contrary to what the naysayers warned, uh, income to the government rose. It was about a third higher at the end of the decade than uh, it was at the time uh, Mellon started cutting tax rates. He even cut the estate tax, by the way, by half. He wanted to get rid of it altogether, but the most he could get through Congress was a reduction from 40% to 20%. Um, this was a man who knew what wealth creation was all about. He had done it himself in shipbuilding and aluminum and banking. Uh, he, he knew that uh, incentive plays a, a great role in whether or not entrepreneurs feel safe uh, to invest and create wealth. So I give him a lot of credit. I think he's uh, a great man not only because of the wealth he personally created at the helm of those enterprises, but maybe even more so for all the wealth he allowed to be created by engineering reduction in punitive tax rates. Um, a couple others, and then I know I need to allow some time for questions. John Copperthwaite, how many know him? Uh, Heritage, of course, produces the Index of Economic Freedom, and you know that at the top of it for decades now, I think, has been Hong Kong. And more than any other single person, the man responsible for that was a Scot named John Copperthwaite, who after World War II, when his home country was lurching in a socialist direction, and he's in Hong Kong as part of the British administration, he decides we're not going to do that. 
we only got 750,000 people here. We're just a rock. We haven't got resources. We've got a wave of refugees pouring in. If we're going to make a go of it here, we've got to free this economy. And so he engineered substantial uh, uh, reductions in taxes. Uh, one of my favorite comments of his was made to Milton Friedman, famously. When Friedman uh, went to Hong Kong for the filming of one of the segments of the TV series Free to Choose, he asked Copperthwaite uh, something to the effect that, you know, it's obvious that what you've done has worked here, uh, but I need statistics that can verify and I can't find any. And Copperthwaite said, that's by design. Uh, I don't let the bureaucrats compile numbers because if I did, the moment they start compiling numbers, they'll think they can plan the economy. And a great wisdom uh, from a man who engineered the remarkable uh, birth of one of Asia's tiger economies, uh, that of Hong Kong. Now you have about eight, no, about 10 times as many people, seven and a half million, living far higher, well above the world average, than uh, a mere 750,000 lived uh, just a few generations ago. Ludwig Erhard, uh, or another example, and, uh, the architect of the post-World War II uh, German economic miracle. Anytime you hear somebody say, well, you know, this economy is in terrible shape here in this country. What can they, can't have free markets. You've got to have central direction, government in charge, to take that ravaged economy and give it some direction. Erhard uh, inherited a, a terrible situation. Think of Germany, 19, late 1940s. It had just endured uh, years of a socialist regime. Everything was planned, controlled, directed by the state, for the state, for the benefit of the state. The Allied uh, occupation imposed further controls, price controls uh, in particular on the German economy. It was a mess, ravaged, occupied, uh, many of its cities wiped out, manufacturing facilities destroyed, a terrible situation. So how do you get out of a situation like that? And also, I don't know how many refugees pouring in from the east. All of this stuff, uh, a desperate situation by any measure, hyperinflation on top of it. Ludwig Erhard overnight, uh, over the objections, in fact, as it turned out, of American authorities, decided he was going to free the German economy. He went on radio on a Sunday and told the German people, as of the next day, there will be no more wage controls, no price controls. We're going to have a sound currency and stop the hyperinflation. The new Deutschmark he inaugurated at the same time. Reduction in tax rates, uh, encouragement for savings. And what happens? Within a decade, Germany becomes an economic powerhouse, the leading economic power in Western Europe. It wasn't because of socialism, the central planning, it was because of wealth creation that Earhart's policies made possible. Finally, I just want to uh, close by saying something about uh, someone who, as, as a Christian, I regard as the greatest hero of all time, and who had something to say about wealth creation, and that was uh, Jesus Christ. How many of you today have heard people say, oh, well, if Jesus were here today, he'd be a socialist? Yeah, you hear it a lot. I've, I've heard it for 50 years. I think I hear it more today than I ever have before. Uh, I just want to, uh, this is uh, detailed in an essay you can find on our website called Was Jesus a Socialist? And the answer to that was decisively no. Uh, and it begins, the answer to that begins by pointing out what socialism is. It isn't, you know, people sharing things with each other. It isn't Jack and Jill having a 
good time giving each other stuff. It isn't happy faces and the way socialism is often presented as, oh, everybody just being nice to each other and sharing things. I mean, you can do that under capitalism. In fact, sharing things and giving things happens to a far greater extent under capitalism than it ever happens under socialism. And it's not done at gunpoint either. Um, socialism is the use of force. That's the salient characteristic that differentiates it from any other ism uh, in economic life. It's the use of force. If it's compulsory, it's probably socialism. If it's voluntary. If it's voluntary, it's not socialism. I'm sure you, you folks here don't need to be told this, but every progressive scheme is a new uh, proposal for compulsion in some way. They, they never say, hey, here's a voluntary plan. We hope you'll participate. Everything they want to do is, is uh, so good in their minds that it has to be imposed uh, by force and usually monopolized. I like to say that uh, you can illustrate the difference between capitalism and socialism, and I'll get into what Jesus had to say here, uh, it, with this example, imagine the Girl Scouts, a couple of Girl Scouts coming to your home. They knock on the door, you answer, and they say, would you like to buy some cookies? You get to decide uh, to answer yes or no. That's capitalism. If they show up the next day with a SWAT team and you answer the door and they say, you're going to buy these cookies and you're going to eat them and you're going to like them, uh, that's socialism. Okay, And the difference, of course, is uh, the use of political force. You can scour the New Testament, the words of Jesus Christ himself, and not find anything that remotely suggests the use of force to achieve what are typically socialist objectives, the redistribution of wealth or government ownership of the means of production uh, or the um, uh, central command of an economy. Nothing in Jesus' words suggests that uh, he would call the cops for the, for the purpose of any of those objectives. In the book of Luke 12, 13 through 15, a man comes to Christ and says, Master, speak to my brother that he divideth the inheritance with me. And Jesus could have said, I suppose, well, yeah, I'll look into it. Uh, or maybe uh, you got uh, too little and maybe we should equalize what, uh, what you get with what the other guy got. Nothing like that. Instead, he immediately rebukes the man for his envy and says, man, who made me a judge or divider over you? We'll know that we finally won this battle if people like, say, Nancy Pelosi stand up someday and say, you know, I used to be in favor of all these schemes for redistribution. And I just realized that, gee, who made me a judge or divider over you? Uh, that, don't hold your breath. Uh, he said he came to uphold the law, the Mosaic law, uh, central to which is the, uh, the Ten Commandments. The Eighth and Tenth have something to say about wealth creation and uh, the, the um, maintenance of it. The Eighth Commandment specifically says, thou shalt not steal, period. doesn't say thou shalt not steal unless you're just absolutely sure you could spend it better than the guy that earned it. Or thou shalt not steal unless... Um, you really want it, or unless you can find a politician who will do it on your behalf. It says, thou shalt not steal, period. And if for a moment I could put my mind in the mind of, of, of God when he constructed the Ten Commandments, I, I could see maybe after coming up then with the Ninth, he might have thought, you know, I'm not so sure that the Eighth will be widely practiced, so I'm going to have to add another one. 
The Tenth Commandment is thou shalt not covet. And I think that dovetails nicely with the Eighth because coveting is what often leads to stealing. It's coveting that then causes people through envy to say, well, let's, you know, if I can't get it myself from that guy, I'll hire the government to do it on my behalf. Um, you find parables of, of Jesus time and again that uh, uphold things like the sanctity of contract and private property, the parable of the talents. A wealthy man gives uh, uh, wealth to, uh, he leaves town for a time and he gives considerable wealth to three people to entrust them with it. Well, he's gone. He comes back later and he says, well, what's happened? And the first guy says, I buried it in the ground and I've got just exactly as much as you gave me in the first place. I've protected it. The second guy says, oh, I, I put it to work. I actually have doubled or tripled uh, what you entrusted me with. The third guy says, I've done even better than that. Who in that parable is the one that gets the praise and who gets the uh, criticism? The guy who buries it uh, in this parable from the words of Christ himself. He's the guy who's reprimanded. And uh, Christ says in the parable, we're going to take what you husbanded into you know, nothing, just as much as, I, as you were first given, and we're going to give it to the third guy because he obviously knows how to create wealth. The parable of the workers in the vineyard, likewise, where a man is trying to get his harvest in uh, last minute, and he hires some workers early in the morning to work all day to bring, bring in the crop, pays them a certain wage. Uh, later in the day, he realizes, oh, I've got to hire some more to get it all in. He offers them as much as he paid the workers um, uh, who came first for a whole day. And then finally, with an hour to go, he, he needs some more workers, so he offers some people uh, as much as the others got for a whole day just to work for an hour. Now, a socialist would say, how unfair. But uh, in the parable, when uh, uh, the man is questioned about this, what's his response as explained by Christ? His response is, it's my money. If I have to pay more to get people to do the job, well, you know, I, uh, that's what I did. This is called supply and demand, in effect. He didn't say that, but that's the way I look at it as an economist. It's called supply and demand. You pay what you have to to get the workers that you need. Contract. Uh, the, the early workers who worked all day for the same that the last ones got for an hour, uh, the parable makes it plain. They have no right to complain because... Uh, uh, they signed a contract, and uh, both, uh, the other side delivered. Uh, so that's a defense, I think, of private property and, uh, um, and enterprise and supply and demand. Finally, um, some people say, well, what about the money, uh, money changer episode where Christ drives money changers from the temple? Isn't that uh, an indication that he doesn't like wealthy people or doesn't like money? Uh, you know, lots of things uh, that people... Uh, misconstrue about that. But have you ever noticed that that's the only occasion when Christ drives money changers, salesmen, uh, whatever other synonym you may want to use from someplace, and it's from God's house. He never drives money changers from a bank or from a, from a marketplace. This is simply an example of some behavior that was not appropriate in that time and place, any more than it would be appropriate for you to show up at a funeral with a kazoo and start playing Happy Days Are Here Again. You can bet there'll be a lot of people who will run you off. Uh, that doesn't mean they don't like kazoo music. It just means that uh, this is not the place uh, to do it. And um, as Heritage's own Index of Economic Freedom has illustrated, 
the freer the economy, the more the wealth creation uh, that happens, and the more real problems of real people actually get solved. So why would uh, Jesus Christ, a man who uh, came to uh, instruct us on things like peace and character and, and the, the good life and so forth, why would he support a system that routinely ravages people and thrusts them into both tyranny and poverty? It doesn't make sense. Outcomes should matter. With that, I'm sorry, I know I've gone a little bit over, but I hope we still have some time for questions. Thank you for listening, and I'll be happy to take uh, questions if we have time. Thank you. Hi there, this is Vanessa Brown Calder with Cato Institute. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about your process for selecting these 40 different real heroes that maybe outside of obviously their wealth generators and they have strong characters. Was there anything else, something about, you know, maybe they were sympathetic in some way or kind of what were those soft characteristics that you used in order to decide who made the book? That's a great question. Uh, I, this, is, uh, this was a book that I had in my mind for a long time. So there are a few chapters in the book about people like Vivian Kellams that I knew about for a long time. I remember reading her uh, things by her in Human Events when I first started reading that in the late 60s. Uh, so that kind of, in the back of my mind, I thought there were some of those people that need to be dusted off and, and uh, rediscovered. Um, there were some that I discovered in the process of researching other people. Uh, one man who's a chapter, Vitold Pilecki, is uh, the bravest man I think I've ever learned about. But I didn't know about him until I was researching uh, uh, heroes from the history of Poland. And I stumbled upon this guy, and I thought, oh my gosh, you don't get any braver or more courageous than this guy. So uh, it, I didn't uh, pick the 40 and then write about them. There were some I picked along the way. Uh, but I also looked for uh, people who uh, were transformative uh, in their effect on others. So there are many examples of that, people who weren't content to make a difference in their own lives but actually reached out and did a lot to improve the lot and make it possible for other people to live in freedom. People who spoke truth to power, I've always uh, admired. Uh, so there are some who, like Father Papayushko of Poland, that's his principal claim to uh, fame, the fact that he spoke so uh, courageously against the communist regime and was martyred for it. Uh, people whose lives um, may not have always been good ones. There are some in there who lived terrible lives, but there came a moment uh, in some of, them, of their lives where they realized, I've got to clean up my act. They had an epiphany of some kind or another, like Augustine, uh, who by his own admission was a, a, a pretty rotten character early in his life, but uh, turned himself around and in the process uh, gave us immense wisdom that uh, survives now 1,600 years. So everyone is a little bit different uh, story, I guess. And the very last chapter is of a man I came to know who I didn't think really was a hero yet, but I wanted to write about somebody who uh, could be seen as, he, he's just like us, he's an ordinary guy, he fell into trouble with the law, he's been in prison longer than uh, he's not been in prison, his name is Larry Cooper, and um, he just got out. When I, I, I came to know him through correspondence uh, for several years while he was in prison, but never met him until uh, he actually got in person, until he got out. 
And I thought, well, I want to end with an uplifting message about a guy who we don't know yet if he's a hero. But uh, the rest of us ought to encourage him. Uh, heroes sometimes arise because they uh, just do it because they know it's the right thing to do. But uh, quite often it's because they know that somebody out there has given them a lift, giving them some encouragement. And uh, so uh, I, I thought ending on that note would might prompt people to say, you know, I, we might have some heroes in our midst, potential ones, and I ought to try to encourage them if I can. I hope that answers your question. Yes, sir. Josh Starr, intern with the Heritage Foundation. Um, do you see the economy becoming more winner-take-all, and does that pose any problems to wealth creation? Uh, is the economy becoming more winner-take-all? Uh, I'm, I'm not certain what you mean by that, but, uh, but let me try an answer, and I think it might uh, address it. You know, the bigger government gets uh, as a portion of all that we do, the more the game is, by definition, rigged. Uh, to the advantage of the of the already advantaged, the already politically connected, the already big, uh, and the tougher it is for uh, uh, new job creators starting with nothing. So it does bother me that uh, we now have a government that consumes what uh, twenty to twenty five percent, just the federal level, of all that we produce. You add state and local, it's uh, beyond thirty, and you add the cost of regulation, it may be close to forty. In so many other ways, it's intrusive and affects uh, behavior in a, in a negative way. Um, the more rigid the economy becomes because of that stuff, the more it rigs the game uh, in favor of, of the specially advantaged. I want a, f a truly free and vibrant economy in which you will find the greatest of the job creators are not the biggest of companies. They've already done it, you know, but, but it's the newcomers who challenge the big big guys, and in a relatively free economy can actually ultimately put them out of business if they can serve the consumer better. We're, uh, we're biasing the economy against that source of wealth creation uh, uh, through the sheer size and scope of government, and that, that does, it should concern us all. Larry, fascinating stories and just yeah, beautifully delivered. Thank you. Um, John Kramer from the Institute for Justice. Uh, going back to Rockefeller, uh, it was you know, fascinating to see the rivalry between him and Vanderbilt. Yeah. And they were each using their own private enterprises against the other to you know, get a lock on uh, the oil traffic in the rail cars. And then you know, Rockefeller responds with the pipelines. Yes. So you have mm -hmm. a really dynamic growth. But it seems like these days entrepreneurs wouldn't go up against each other in that same kind of entrepreneurial way to create all this innovation. They'd go to the government first. Can you talk a little bit about that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, there are chapters in the book uh, on entrepreneurs, and I deliberately chose those who didn't have that kind of track record, trying to make the point that uh, a, a, a true, honest, capitalist entrepreneur succeeds by his or her own effort, not by uh, you know, hiring politicians to rig the game to his advantage. But it happens all the time. Uh, and uh, in my mind, the best way to ultimately attack that is, I mean, we can do the economic studies and point out the, the harm that, you know, ethanol subsidies do and all that kind of stuff. But ultimately, uh, if we're to uh, 
um, reverse that and so many other corrupting trends uh, that hurt uh, uh, our free economy, I think we have to uh, use arguments that, that spring from character. I would like entrepreneurs who turn to the government for special favors ultimately to feel as though to do that they kind of have to hang their head in shame, that uh, that's dirty business. Uh, I would like them to show up at their Rotary Club and have fellow members say, what, you went to the government? And, oh, my gosh. I don't, we're going to have to reassess your membership. <laughs> That's the, you will know we've won when we sort of shame that kind of activity. Uh, but uh, that's going to take some work. But it's a character issue, ultimately. Somebody who runs to the government to disadvantage a competitor, uh, that's an ev evidence, I think, of lousy character. And we should challenge them on that basis, not just that, hey, this is bad economics. We should add this extra element and say, you're just a bad character. You're a bad person. How do you hold your head up? How do you sleep at night when you use your political connections to disadvantage others at the expense of them and of consumers? We should shame that kind of activity. I don't know if that answers your question, John. David Burton, the Heritage Foundation. David, you're the guy uh, who instigated this some months ago. Thank you. Yes, and I'm, I'm glad you could join us. I guess my question is, is this. Uh, young people seem to be uh, depressingly open to socialism, and it's largely based on an ignorance of socialism's record of uh, causing millions to fall into poverty and and uh, reducing standards of living across the world. But you work with young people a lot. You spend a lot of time with college students and high school students. I was interested in knowing what message you found most effective in terms of persuading them that socialism is a mistake and, and uh, educating them about the realities of socialism. Yes. Uh, very good question, David. Mm -hmm. Uh, which reminds me also to put in a plug for the FEE website. I hope you'll visit it at feefee.org. And you'll see how every day we work on this very issue by what we uh, host and by the seminars that we hold for high school and college students. Uh, generally speaking, uh, we're finding, uh, we spend a lot of time researching this and ass assessing effectiveness of different tools, that the younger the audience, the more you must employ uh, stories of real people to get your message across. Uh, that's a, an important ingredient. Storyteller, uh, storytelling about real people who have been models, ex exemplars of things like character and real free enterprise, not the doctored stuff uh, that looks like crony uh, capitalism. That's a very important part of it. Also, um, I think by wrapping character into the message, I'm, I'm, I've been amazed at how that resonates, even with young people. And, and how you do that is important, because it can easily sound to young people as though you're being preachy or moralistic or kind of coming down on them in some way. But instead, if you put a more positive, uplifting spin on it and say, you know, let me tell you about people who we can admire because of the lives they lived, the models uh, that they are. And then you start making the connection for young people uh, between liberty, that they all say they want, and character, which they may not yet be convinced is important, but there is a direct connection. We need to convince young people that uh, this business of liberty, of a free economy, isn't just a matter of uh, good economics. 
Uh, it's an evidence of sound character. It's a lofty calling. Um, Liberty is the only social, political, economic arrangement, the only one that requires that we live to high standards of character. I don't know of any civilization in the history of the world that ever uh, lost its character and kept its liberties. That's how important it is. Uh, and it's not just like, oh, well, grudgingly, I guess I better be a good person. No, this is a lofty calling. This is something that you could be proud of, something you could work toward for a lifetime and be able to say at the end of your life, I didn't solve every problem, but doggone it, I, I was as good an example for the people around me as I could be. Wouldn't you love to say that? And then every day we see people who are living just the opposite kind of lives. And if they're honest on the day they check out, they'd have to say they blew it. Young people today need, need to realize it's never too soon to work on character. If you want to live in a free society, it's indispensable. If you want to live a good life, you yourself must commit to character. That's how important it is. That means things like uh, not stealing from others, respecting the lives and the property and the contracts and the associations and the choices of other people. Not be quick with the schemes that foist things upon them uh, by the force of law. So uh, that, that's an ingredient. We used to spend a lot more time just on you know, supply and demand and how prices work. We still do that, but we connect it all to the importance of living a good character-filled life. Um, and uh, that resonates with young people. We'll end on this note. Okay. Thanks, everybody. Larry, really appreciate thank it. You so much. Thanks for thank, you. Thank, you so much. thank you all for joining us.